So let me tell you a story. It's from a grandfather, Fred Craddock, a great preacher. He recently went home to be with Jesus. But uh, this was a few years ago. He said, this past week, I went to see Star Wars Episode One: The Phantom Menace, with my two grandsons. Not wanting to be totally ignorant, I inquired around about the movie before we went. I learned the name Luke Skywalker, but that is about all I had. We went to this crowded theater, and in just a few minutes, there was loud applause. I asked the boys, what's the applause for? They said, those two are Jedi. Well, of course, I said. And the movie went on. And as it did, I became, it became increasingly clear that I didn't know what was going on. So I asked my 10-year-old son next to me, when is Luke Skywalker going to appear? He said, he hasn't been born yet. I said, well, I know that name, Luke Skywalker, and he's a good guy. He said, episodes 4, 5, and 6 came out, and now we're going to have 1, 2, and 3. I said, so that's why everyone in here knows so much. He said, yeah, everyone knows about them. We have them at home if you want to look at them. I said, thanks, but I don't think so. That's rather strange having episode one after you've had four, five, and six. He said, Gramps, this is a prequel. It's before all the others. Everyone believes in a story to explain their existence. It produces their life, their morals, their, their messes, their decisions, their diversions, their passions, their pursuits, their relationships, their risks. One day, Jesus' pastors came to him and asked, what's your story? They really asked, when is the kingdom of God going to come? But Jesus had been going around saying, he's the king, he's bringing the kingdom. So they're really essentially asking him, what's your story? You heard it read. He said it will be like this age, the days of Lot and Noah, people going about their business, their busy lives, buying and selling, planting and building, eating and drinking. And then, can I say it this way? Boom. Jesus appears before the entire world and not just the living world, before every human soul that has ever existed. And in a moment, everything fixed and followers freed. And then he said, if you want to save your life, if you try to save your life, you will lose it. And if you lose your life for me, you will keep it because it was never yours to begin with. The problem with that story, if you believe it, is that its pace seems very slow. There seems to be a pause button that's been pushed. There seems to be a, a delay, like when is this going to happen? I know in our personal lives, we pray and we pray and it just seems if God's absent and he doesn't care. I mean, my marriage is still misery. My kids are still suffering and I'm still lonely. We look out into the wider world and we see that people are still shooting each other 
and wrecking their own lives with substances and sickness and selfishness and sex. Into all of this and into this time, Jesus comes and he says, Waterstone, here's my big idea for you this morning. It's verse 1, Luke 18. Here's what I want you to take out of the room this morning and into your life. Luke 18, 1. I want you to always pray and never give up. I want you to always pray and never give up. And the question is, where does that persistence come from? How do we persevere? Here's my answer. Here's the idea. The idea is this. I believe that persistence in prayer comes from the story we believe that we're in. Persistence in prayer comes from the story that we believe we're in. So Jesus tells a story to connect us to that story. I find it interesting, don't you? that as you think about Jesus and his teaching on prayer, there's very little time given to technique. He gives us a template in Matthew 6, Luke 11, the Lord's Prayer. That's about it as far as technology or technique. Much more often when Jesus wants to motivate us to pray and have us persevere, he tells stories. Why? Because prayer is 90% attitude. 10% technique. God doesn't care a whole lot how you talk to Him. He does care that you talk to Him. And the that comes from attitude. An attitude of prayer. And this morning, He's going to tell us a story about attitude and prayer. We need it. We need it, right? Um, there was an AP correspondent that got assigned to the Jerusalem Bureau and she rented a flat that overlooked the Wailing Wall and for several weeks, every time, no matter what time of day she looked out her window, she would see this same old Jewish man praying, pouring his heart out, rocking just before the wall, praying for hours. So finally it was a story she couldn't resist and she went and talked to the old Jewish man and she said, how long have you been coming here to the wall to pray and what do you pray about? And he said, I've been coming to the wall for 25 years. And in the morning, I pray for shalom throughout the world and the brotherhood of man. And then I go home and have a cup of tea. And in the afternoon, I come back and I pray for the eradication of sickness and disease from the world. And she said, for 25 years every day how does it feel to pray for something every day for 25 years and he said it feels like I am talking to a wall you're in good company when you feel that way really good company arguably I would argue this that at least in the Old Testament the man who had the closest most intimate relationship with God was David and listen to one of his prayers, the first two verses, Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? So far from my cries of anguish. My God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer. By night, but I find no rest. We are in good company 
when we find that we need some perseverance to keep talking to God. Jesus says, I want you to always pray and not give up. And now he's going to tell us a story so that we won't give up. Perseverance comes from the story you believe you're in. He tells this story about a widow and a judge. Ben read it earlier. It's a great story. So much layering and texture. Because, there, and this is often in Jesus' two-point parables, there's often a character that represents us. So we look at the widow and we see ourselves. But what's so cool about Jesus and his amazing storytelling is that when we see the widow, we see that in one way, we are exactly like the widow. But at the same time, we are nothing like the widow. And we'll unpack that. But then you look at the judge, and the judge, as in many parables, Jesus tells, there's a character that represents God. And we look at the judge, and we see who God is. And what is, again, so amazing about Jesus in this, that the judge is nothing like God. And at the same time, exactly like God. This is a fun story. And it connects us to the bigger story. And knowing that bigger story, as we see when we get to the end, can keep us praying. Widows had a hard go of it in the ancient world. They do today, and we honor all widows in our midst this morning. In the ancient world, it was a hard go because it was a male-driven world. And if you lost your husband, even the way wills were enacted and transacted hurt the widow because property and wealth never in the ancient world transferred to the wife. It always transferred to a male heir. And the, the husband who died was supposed to leave in his instructions what they called the ketubah. The ketubah was an allowance for the widow. And evidently what is happening in this story that Jesus tells is that the widow was not getting her ketubah. Whether the male heir was not giving it to her or whether there was no male heir and she lost everything. She, she had lost everything and was in a desperate place. She had no ketubah. And she had no advocate. And you need to understand in a male world that the legal system was primarily a male-dominated world. And it wasn't like the solemn demeanor that we know at the Jefferson County Courthouse. It was a shouting match. And there was pushing and shoving, the loudest voice wind, and sometimes the judge, you could green his palm a little bit and get what you want. This widow had no resources. She had no reputation to get her family knocked up a little bit on the docket. She had nothing. She had no support. She was desperate. She was daily dependent on a higher authority. And we are exactly like the widow. We are daily dependent and desperate for a higher authority. I love the way that Paul preached this once in a pagan city of Athens and Acts 17. He makes this amazing statement in the middle of a message. He said, The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. He is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. God is the eternal I am. He is self-sufficient, self-existent, self-sustaining. God exists in a way that is necessary. That is, 
it's not within him to go out of life. He exists because he is life and the generator of all life. He needs nothing. And therefore, sorry, he doesn't need us. He does not need us for his happiness or his holiness or his help. He exists by himself as God in a necessary way and does not have it in himself to go out of existence. We, on the other hand, are a derivative being. And our greatest fear and the thing we have least control over in our life is that we will go out of our life. We do not have necessary life in us. We have dependent life in us, depending on God. It was God who got you out of bed this morning. It was God who gave you the reasoning skills to balance your checkbook yesterday. It was God who gave you the coordination to drive between the lines this morning on the way here, most of you. And it was God who gives you breath. Let's try this, shall we? Shall we actually enact this passage of Scripture in Acts 17? Take a deep breath. Let it out. You know what that was? God. And one day, He will pull the plug on those things you call lungs. And then what? We need God. We are dependent on Him for life daily from our next breath. And we are nothing like the widow. <laughs> the widow keeps coming back. You know, I just imagine this in my mind. I'm, I'm hearing a very shrill voice screaming out above everyone else, trying to get the judge to look her way, trying to get his attention. She's just coming back day after day until, frankly, she's a bit of an embarrassment to him and a pain in his robe. It's funny the language that Jesus uses in this story. He says first that she's bothering me, you know, like a splinter in the bottom of your foot bothering me and then at the very end he says I'm afraid that she's going to come and what this little old widow attack me I'm not sure I like that translation it literally means to blacken the eye it comes from the boxing world boom to blacken the eye to pummel something he's I think there's an element of shame he's embarrassed his courtroom has this probably the only woman in it yelling at the top of her lungs. He's embarrassed. I think also she truly has warned him. She just, he just wants her gone. And we are nothing like the widow. Because Jesus comes in verse 6. If we could put verses 6 through 8 back up on the screen. He says in verse 6, listen to the judge. And then he says, but we're so, it's so much different for us. Why? Because we are God's, the word is chosen ones. Or elect would be the word. It's a, it's a, it's a phrase of knowledge that God chooses us to know us, to make us his family. Listen to what the unjust judge says, and will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones? In other words, if I could say it this way, we are not like the widow because we are the bride of Christ. 
Now I know, especially men in the room, sometimes you bride of Christ, what is that, you know, it's a metaphor, okay? So just think about marriage. If you're married or if you've watched a good marriage, or if you've ever in your moment seen one good moment from a marriage, that is just a pale comparison to the kind of covenant love that Jesus wants to give to you and I. That committed, ever-present, sacrificial, all-giving love. If you've ever experienced that in your life, that's just a glimpse of how God loves you. Or we could also say that when Jesus came, one of the reasons He came was to make us a child of the Father. So think of it this way. This widow, we're nothing like her because she had no reputation, no other male heirs, no other family that would raise her up the dog. She had no representation, no advocate in the courtroom of the judge who would stand in her place and argue her case and bring justice to her. She had no reputation, she had no representation, and she had no resources, not even to green the palm of the... She had nothing but you, bride of Christ. But you, children of the Father, do you realize how exactly unlike the widow you are? Because you are God's chosen. You are His body that He wants to have relationship with. I'm saying that you have reputation. Would you read this out loud? Because after all, it's your reputation with me. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of Him who called you out of darkness into His wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. You have reputation. You have a place and a power in this world that's driven by God. You are His chosen family. And you also have representation. Jesus Christ, would you read this to worship Him this morning? My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ, the Righteous One. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins and not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. Unlike the widow, you have a lawyer and that lawyer has not only gone and argued your case, he's actually stood in your place to take your penalty. This Jesus, our advocate, he lived the life we should have lived, a perfect and holy life. And he gives that to us so that when God looks at us and says, are you fit for heaven? He doesn't see our sins or our unrighteousness. He sees Jesus' righteousness clothed around us. And he says, yes, you are fit. Welcome home. And also... Jesus died the death we should have died, which means our sins are forgiven. God's divine justice and wrath was poured out on His own Son and taken from over top of our heads such that we have forgiveness. And we are not under God's wrath. And we are welcomed into relationship. We have reputation and we have representation. Jesus Christ. Uh, we know someone who can get us justice from the judge the court of authority in this world we know i always when i think of this advocate idea i remember a few years ago i was teaching your children in sunday school something i love to do and do several times a year and we were talking about the relationship of a child with the heavenly father 
And afterwards, we had this like Q&A time, and one kid was just jumping up and down. You know how they want to be called on, and he says, well, my dad, he works for Waukeed Martin. And he can show you a rocket. It's always about who you know. Always. And if you know Jesus, you get to see the blast off of the gas-guzzling glory coming at the end of the age. Reputation. Representation and finally resources. Look at our resources. Would you again read this out loud? Because after all, it's your resource. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit Himself intercedes with us through wordless groans. And He who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. I want to hold on to this verse. We're going to come back to the concept again of the Spirit praying for us and from within us. But I wanted at this point just to remind you that we are not like the widow because we have resources. The Spirit of God lives in us. So Jesus says, here is the story you're in and here's what will keep you praying. You are like the widow, which means you are totally dependent on me. You need me every breath that you breathe. But in the same way, you are nothing like the widow because you have complete and total access to me with every breath that you breathe. We are in a good place. And the Spirit, even when we can't pray, even when we won't pray, the Spirit in us is praying. We are nothing like the widow and exactly like the widow. Now let's look at God. And this judge is nothing like God. And he's exactly like God. This judge, it says twice in the text, he neither fears God nor cares about people. Neither fears God nor cares about people. He didn't have to. He was at the top of the food chain. He was uh, in a place of power, probably wealth. And you and I both know, we've probably experienced this some in our own life, that the more comfortable you are, the less need you have, the more likely to forget those who are less comfortable and have more need than you. We know it. Admit it. It's true. And we often forget. This judge was acting nothing like the judges that God appointed to Israel. And therefore, God is nothing like this judge do you know why? Because God cares for people. All through Jesus' ministry, he would throw in these kind of almost underneath the comments that are, if you think about it, are just mind-blowing. He said in one place, he said, God cares for you. You know, he's paying attention to your life. He even knows the number of hairs that you have on your head. Can you imagine? Have you ever tried to count your hair? Can you imagine that? Keep your comments to yourself. <laughs> he says in another almost throwaway line, he says, he notices when birds fall out of trees. So in your backyard, God is a bird keeper and knows the birds that come and go from your esteemed estate. 
God knows the hairs of your head, the birds in your backyard. He cares for you. And in this age, that care is, is, is amplified to the most amazing degree because going back to last week when David Bass preached that exceptional sermon from Luke 11 about all prayer is answered in the end because not because our prayers are answered the way we hope or want them to be, but because in the end, we all get what? The Holy Spirit. The Father answers every prayer by giving us the Holy Spirit who lives in our lives. So think about this. The reason God knows the hairs on your head and the birds in your backyard is because He lives in you. He experiences what you experience. He experiences your fears, your pains, your... I'm not saying that He, you know, especially not sin, apart from sin and all that, but I think He even knows the shame feelings that you wrestle with. He knows all of that, all of your struggle, all of your concerns. Why? Because He's in you. He is experiencing life in high definition because He lives in your world with you. That's just amazing to think about how much God cares for you and how He loves you that He experiences your life with you. And when you begin to get glimpses of that, it will like blow your mind. That's why, you know, sometimes, let me just take it to one quick application. Sometimes people email me and they'll say, Larry, I'm going to take a few weeks off worship. And they'll explain why. Because I'm going through a hard time in my life and I come to worship and I just feel like I need to cry. And what they often say is, I feel that if I start crying, I will never stop. So I try to be tender to that. I try to... That's okay. But I, I also want to gently nudge you that, that wrestle with that. Don't stop that crying. Because I'm convinced that's the Holy Spirit crying with your tears. David Hansen, who's a pastor in Cincinnati, Ohio. He lived this for a bit. He writes, When I was eight years old, doctors diagnosed my youngest sister with a life-threatening neuromuscular disease. Not long after this, my father began weeping in church every Sunday. He didn't cry out. He didn't buckle in two with his face in his hands. His tear glands flowed and his voice cracked when he sang the hymns. I never asked him why he was crying, and I didn't know what he was thinking. I still don't. But something important happened inside him during worship. And this went on for several years, years, and tapered off. My sister is now a wife and a mom and a special education teacher. And then he goes on. In 1989, my wife, Debbie, got chronic fatigue syndrome. In three weeks, her life changed from being a graduate student and an adjunct professor to plowed in bed with a low-grade fever, severe short-term memory loss, and barely enough energy to take a shower. Still, somehow, most Sundays... She made it to church. During worship, she sat and wept 
the same way my father had 30 years before. I figured the same thing was happening inside her that happened inside my father. Unutterable changes were occurring and the Spirit was praying from within. God is nothing like that judge who does not care. He cares for you because He lives in you and prays even when you can't. And God is exactly like the judge. Do you know why? Because in the end, the widow gets justice. Justice is the key word in this story, and it's slanted my whole message to this. It occurs four times. This is a story about justice. In other words, what keeps you persevering in prayer is defined by the story that you're in. And how does this story end? It ends with justice. Justice means that every person, every person will get what is rightly coming to them. God has the right to do what is right by His definition with every person. So how does this story end? the widow and the judge story tapping into the meta-narrative, the great story, it ends with God coming back. Jesus, the Son of Man revealed with justice. This story means that God is angry about certain ways that people made in His image womb to grave are being treated This means that God is extremely upset by how His church is being treated in places around the world. We like the notion. We we in American suburbs, I think actually it's become somewhat of our default position. We like the emotion or the, the position that God is always love and always nice. And, you know, He's cream of wheat, powder puff kind of guy. He's my, as David Bass eloquently put it last week, I come to church for a Jesus tingle. God is a just God. And His love is always boundaried and motivated by His holiness and His justice. Let me ask you this. Do you think that the Christian church in Syria, which by the way is one of the oldest churches in the world, Paul the Apostle was saved in Damascus, Syria. Do you think that our Syrian brothers and sisters are just okay with God being nice and loving all the time? Do you think they're okay with that? Or do you think they're actually hoping that God has a justice bone who will deal with people like Amir Hassan who is brutalizing an entire population?
Here's how the story ends. Revelation 1, 7 and 8. Behold, He's coming with the clouds and every eye will see Him, even those who pierced Him. And all the earth will mourn when they see Him. There will be two kinds of mourning in that moment. The next moment. The next moment. The next thing on God's calendar is this. Two kinds of mourning. There will be the mourning of those of us who followed Him. Those of us who came to worship Him. And by the way, back to this cream of wheat, Jesus buddy kind of God. Do you know that the primary word for worship is the word, it literally means to kiss And we think of that word, oh yes, Jesus, I want to have, you know, a nice relationship and he's my buddy. That's not what that word means. Do you know what the word kiss as it relates to worship means? It was the approach of a king who extended his hand to you and his ring was there that rendered him king of all authority in all the kingdom. And when you went to a king's presence, you worshiped, that is, you kissed, you bowed, and you kissed his ring. And in bowing to kiss his ring, you bared your neck. You said, all that I am is yours. My marriage is yours. My children are yours. My work is yours. My health is yours. My life is yours. I'm yours. That's what happens when we come here to worship. That's why you should be here every time the doors are open. It's about kissing the king's ring. It's about pledging your allegiance, every part of your life to him. And it's also about standing with all those, our brothers and sisters around the world who do this every week. You real, and, and Acts 1.8 Jesus said as the Spirit came and launched the church, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the world. You will be my witnesses. Do you know in the Greek what that word witness is? It's martyrion. Does that sound familiar to you? Martyr. You will be my martyrs. That's what you do when you come to worship. You bow your head, bare your neck, give your life again completely and totally to God, and you stand with the martyrs around the world, especially those in places like Syria who need us and our prayers so desperately. That's how the story ends. The question still is about quickly. You know, what's the delay? Well, I would argue that it's not a delay. It's a design. But let me have God speak into that for you. 2 Peter chapter 3. Do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping His promise, as some understand slowness. 
Instead, He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. The day of the Lord will come like a thief. Never expect it. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire, and the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. The point here is this. The only reason Jesus has not come back yet is that there are still more people that he wants to show mercy on, that he's chosen, that he wants to be in their family. The only thing keeping Jesus from coming back is so that another soul can be saved. And I'm convinced there's someone in the room this morning that is there. And I'm asking you, what's your story? And if the story is true about Jesus, it ends with Him appearing to everyone. But when He appears, people will get one of two things, either justice or mercy. And God is glorified by both. And every person will get either justice or mercy. They'll get what they deserve. The question is, Jesus came to show you mercy, to, to stand in your place, to forgive your sins and give you His righteousness. Have you received it? Have you bared the neck? Have you said, Jesus, I'm yours? And when you appear, my morning will be, oh, thank God. Thank God. Thank God that He showed His mercy to me. Thank God that Jesus came for me those would be mornings of deep tears and deep regrets that we should have lived harder for him. But there will be another kind of mourning, a mourning that goes, oh my God, I missed it. I missed it. I saw it every time I looked at the mountains. My neighbor tried to tell me, I missed him. Now I get justice. I missed him. You if you've not bared your neck to the king, you must fly to him for mercy right now. Right now. Just say, Jesus, I'm yours. I'm yours. And those of us who have, what we leave the room with today is an encouragement again to pray for the martyrs. Us, and martyrs around the world, all the witnesses for Jesus. And the way to do that is to pray a psalm. People often ask, Larry, what, you know, I want to bolster my prayer life. I want to get deeper into prayer. The answer to that is always the psalms. Always. If you want to work on your prayer life, the psalms give you the heart and the language to do that. And they teach you how to pray for the witnesses around the world. We're going to end with, by doing one right now. But pray the Psalms. And by praying the Psalms, I just mean one a day. Read it out loud. Read it at your lunch. However you can get it into your day, read the Psalm. And then, as we learned today, there's a certain way. It's called Lectio Divina, spiritual reading. There's a way to pray the Psalms. And it's really about three questions. What do you see about God? What do you see about yourself? And seeing those two things, God and you, what do you really need? Those three questions. Let's do that together right now before we sing our closing psalm. Would you turn? I'd like to actually have you turn in your Bibles to Psalm 68. If we could actually bring the lights up because we need to see this because it will make it easier when we get to the questions. Psalm 68, if we could bring the lights up. Take, a, take the, pew, the chair Bible 
and turn to 465, page 465. We're going to read these six verses three times with 30 seconds in between for a moment of silent reflection. The first time will be God, the second time will be us, and the third time will be what we need. So let me read first Psalm 68, verses 1 through 6, as we pray this psalm. May God arise, may his enemies be scattered, may his foes flee before him. May you blow them away like smoke, as wax melts before the fire. May the wicked perish before God. But may the righteous be glad and rejoice before God. May they be happy and joyful. Sing to God. Sing in praise of His name. Extol Him who rides on the clouds. Rejoice before Him. His name is the Lord, a Father to the fatherless, a defender of widows, is God in His holy setting. God sets the lonely in families. He leads out the prisoners with singing, but the rebellious live in a sun-scorched land. So we'll put these questions up. Just choose one question and reflect with God for a few moments. striving to open our heart to God in prayer. And so let's read these verses again. And this time I'd like you to read with me out loud. Together we pray. May God arise. May His enemies be scattered. May His foes flee before Him. May you blow them away like smoke as wax melts before the fire. May the wicked perish before God. May the righteous be glad and rejoice before God. May they be happy and joyful. Sing to God. Sing in praise of His name. Extol Him who rides on the clouds. Rejoice before Him. His name is the Lord. A Father to the fatherless. A defender of widows. Is God in His holy dwelling. God sets the lonely in families. He leads out the prisoners with singing. But the rebellious live in a sun-scorched land. Again, choose one question. And think about yourself before God. And finally, we read it once more. I'd like to ask for a volunteer with low inhibition and high volume to stand and read the verses for us one more time from your seat. Do I have a volunteer? Somebody really loud. Thank you. Please read it out. And one final moment this morning with a question. <laughs> 